Welcome to the Today Dreamer podcast, where we explore what cultivating the practice of presence looks and feels like within our lives and how we may more fully participate or contribute to the blossoming of the emergent world story as it unfolds. I'm your host, Michael, and I am a meditation teacher, a musician, a mentor, and a conversationalist from Melbourne, Australia. And together we're going to explore this space with one another. And hopefully by the end of this conversation, you'll have you know, a deeper sense of what participation and contribution in the emergent world story looks like for you. Maybe you'll have some inspiration, some motivation, some clarity around the matter. And it's my hope that the, these episodes really do help you cultivate ongoingly your own practices of presence. Today's guest is Donald Rothberg. Let me read through Donald's bio before we begin. Dr. Donald Rothberg is one of the nation's foremost leaders in socially engaged spirituality. His experience uniquely combines a long record of activism and organizing extensive teaching and leadership roles in pioneering programs that weave together social action with spirituality. He has practiced Buddhist meditation for over 25 years and has been significantly influenced by other spiritual traditions, particularly Jewish, Christian, and indigenous. Recently, Donald directed the two-year training program in connecting the individual and social transformation, the path of engagement through Spirit Rock Meditation Center and the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. He's on the Teachers Council of Spirit Rock and has been an organizer, teacher, and board member of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Donald had, has also served as a director of Socially Engaged Spirituality Program at the Saybrook Graduate School in San Francisco. And he's got a wonderful book as well. It's called the Engaged Spiritual Life, a Buddhist approach to transforming ourselves and the world. You can see, I'm sure, why I felt like Donald would be a perfect fit for the show. And I'm really looking forward to share this one with you. So, uh, before we begin, let's take a deep breath in and out together. So, feel free to just get comfortable for a moment. Let's find a little bit of pause within our day to just take one or two conscious breaths in through the nose. You might like to close your eyes and slow things right down. And whenever it is that you may reach the peak of the breath, feel free to just be there for a moment, be there in that moment before just as gracefully and gently releasing. Feel free to repeat this process once, twice, or as many times as you feel. As we gently open into this conversational space with Donald. So I was just going to say that it seems as though you've worked with a lot of different teachers and, and you've kind of 
weaved in and out a lot of different interesting methods and practices over your time. And, and there's been a lot of kind of engaged action as well in your life. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's just, there's quite a, like this, I, this feeling like there's quite a lot in terms of just what I've run through, through the links that you sent. It seems like that's the case in terms of the richness of your experience and your wisdom. So for me, I, I find that quite inspirational and, and I'd love to kind of, I don't know, maybe, work through some of the things that I'm going through at the moment in terms of um, finding um, or, or finding my footing on, on my path. And then hopefully that could help people um, just because people may be having similar experiences. I also kind of was thinking, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this, maybe because there is so much, I mean, I've written down quite a few gems that I've found and I was wondering if we could just go in kind of a sporadic direction rather than the natural kind of i mean it will be natural i'm sure but usually I, i'll there'll, there'll be some kind of a, a a solid theme and we'll go through that and i was thinking if we just spread the gems out maybe people might see or find one or two that connect with them and they can go deeper on their own sure i'll, I'll take your lead you know you know your audience <laughs> okay wonderful uh, well the first thing was um that came up for me was um this idea of equanimity and hmm and having a long-term perspective on things oh, yeah. and I really I really kind of appreciated that and it seems to be where some of the recent conversations have led um I think you mentioned in one of your talks from the bing bang you know looking many generations forward so yeah. this sense of like zooming out and um that quality of equanimity I, I found might be a nice place to start and and that theme might be a might be a nice place to open into i thought or felt yeah yeah i think there there are many dimensions of equanimity i mean it's uh certainly uh in in the teachings of the buddha equanimity is actually somewhat close to nibbana so it's it's in in the presence of the sacred when one is experiencing equanimity it's uh Again, it's an unusual English word, but it really has to do, you know, in my own experience, has to do with uh, um, on, on individual level. Most basically, it's about the ability to be balanced with what comes up and to be balanced and non-reactive with what comes up. And so then we could, could ask, uh, how can I be balanced and non-reactive with this range of experiences or the, these particularly uh, challenging experiences? And, and in my experience, a lot of the learning about equanimity comes from having been non-balanced, reactive, and non-equanimous and having learned from it. <laughs> so I think one of the great uh, contributors to developing equanimity is having an approach to life in which we see life as about learning, you know, and of course, from the spiritual traditions, it's about learning to awaken or to come into presence with God or however it's expressed in different traditions. And so, but to take everything as an opportunity for learning is not common. But that's really the, that's the basis for equanimity. So I've learned, you know, uh, you know, and again, the, you know, a lot of the practices help us to 
basically not be overly freaked out by what's happening. Um, you know, because when you get freaked out or go into survival mode, learning is very difficult, right? So how can we uh, turn even difficult experiences into learning experiences? And again, having teachers, mentors, community, teachings, practices, all of these are crucial. So, uh, so some of, you know, some of what I uh, have looked at in the context of uh, looking at the larger world and social engagements uh, has been having, you know, there are a lot of things that help, but having a long-term perspective is very helpful. So having a long-term perspective about one's own awakenings, you know, however uh, distant it might, might seem to know that that's a trajectory, you know, and, and that can give some degree of equanimity. And then I think what you were referring to also, I found it inspiring to learn from people who I've met, uh, who have these very long-term perspectives about, um, engaging in the process of, uh, developing a more sane, sustainable society. So I think of uh, uh, Dr. Aryaratni from Sri Lanka, who in the context of Sri Lanka said, we have to have a 500 year plan because the problems took 500 years to, to form. You know, he's referring to colonialism and the, uh, this is particularly in the context of the uh, uh, conflictual relationship between the Tamils and the Sinhalese and so forth. And he said, we have to have a 500 year plan because it took 500 years for the problems to form. And so we need to have this long-term view about how we, we work with them. And so that, that can be very, very helpful to have, uh, you know, have a long-term view. Of course, uh, what does the IPC See, tell us, uh, or what do people say now? Well, we've got 10 years, or I guess that was 2020. We've got eight years. So how do you have a long-term view with that kind of prognosis, right? So still, and, and I think it's also related to um, having a sense that things can move in a mysterious way. I think that's also very important for this equanimity. It's to you know, to have one's best sense of what's happening, but then to uh, also have a sense that there's a mystery to it. You know, I, I visited the uh, former, I visited the former Soviet Union three months before the Soviet Union ended. Who would have known that it was about to end, right? And uh, we think of sometimes there are very quick changes can happen. So there's, there's also this mysterious nature to both individual transformation and social transformation. And that's, that's helpful for, for equanimity, I think. It's to, because one doesn't get overly invested in one's own way of understanding. Yeah. You know, yeah, and in different traditions, you, one can you know, one can, you, you do one's best, you do your best, but then you, you, in a way, you, um, you give things up to the larger process without thinking that you know everything. Yeah. 
So that's crucial, you know. Do your and, best and let go of the rest, or something like that. Yeah. Or, or what was the line from uh, line from T. S. Eliot? One of his poems. Uh, uh, how does it go? Um, I, I think the the punchline of that was, you know, you basically basically do your best and then let things be what they are. I think his punchline was the rest is not our business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's this, this idea of like the IPCC report possibly bringing up a sense of panic. And then yeah. that yeah. sense of panic might not be the most useful. And, and this idea of the zooming out, but also the sense of zooming in at the same time into this moment into mm -hmm. this step and yeah. and how they kind of link together is what's coming up for me. Yeah, yeah, it's it's always it's always about what's the skillful response in this moment. And it always comes down to that. So, yeah, we want we can have a long-term perspective, but it's all in the service of being skillful in this moment. Mm. Yeah, I I found uh, the talk you did on on doing and not doing to be quite kind of um, alive and um, interesting, and it's a very it's a very awesome topic and particularly particularly powerful for people who are doers, which mm -hmm. is a large percentage of people in um, uh, I think in in Western cultures. You know, and uh, I found it just, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it came out of my own, uh, it came out of, I think, a retreat or the teaching started last year, although I'd been thinking about it for a long time. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's related to different themes and their themes in different traditions. Like I remember my, uh, <clears throat> uh, my experience as a young college teacher teaching an ethics class uh, in the evening uh, during uh, American football season with a large number of football players taking the ethics class as a required class. This is the setup for the torture of a young teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, or like, as you mentioned before, like a, a pivotal um, or strengthening learning point or something. It was a learning point and I, I, was, I was having a rough time and it was painful. And then I remembered this teaching from the Bhagavad Gita about uh, action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. And I said, I'm not sure what's happening here. I will do my best. I will let, you know, I will not get invested in the results and who knows what will happen, but I don't know what's happening and it's, uh, and it was very, it was, it gave me a lot more ease and it, I think it was better teaching. And at the end of the semester, uh, several of the football players came up and said, uh, this was the best class I've had, you know, and wow. yeah, just to, just to give your listeners a clear view, this was an evening class, you know, American football or football in US and Canada is somewhat similar. And uh, I was teaching a class maybe at seven or 7.30 in the evening. And uh, it was about one third, if I remember clearly, uh, football players. It was during football season, which meant uh, 
uh, what had they done right before coming to class? They had had their academic classes in the morning, then they had had lunch, then they had maybe three or four hours of uh, football practice. Then they had had a really, really big meal. <laughs> then they came to my class. <laughs> yeah. And what were they interested in? Well, probably not the class. Plus, <laughs> it was a required class, so they were taking it just to get through the school. They didn't come out of interest. And so the, the conditions were not great. So, yeah, so having that sense. And then, and then also, uh, you know, the, the, the sense of, of doing and not doing came especially out of a, about a one-month retreat that I did last year during the pandemic at home and the um the theme that came out of that retreat was bringing non-doing into my meditation and my daily life during that time and it's a theme that i've worked with for a lot of years i remember having a teacher probably 20 years ago he, I think he could sense that I was an avid meditative doer. <laughs> I would do these practices or that practices. And he gave me the assignment for a retreat, for a 10-day retreat. Uh, this was uh, Christopher Titmus from, from England. And he gave, who I think has taught a lot in Australia. And he gave me the assignment um, for this retreat, don't do anything, not even meditation but don't be distracted and be aware of the absolute. Those were his, those were his instructions. I said, whoa, what does that mean? And, um, and, and so, but what was very clear was that it meant not to use any meditative techniques and yet still to, in a way, be present. And so I, you know, I was, uh, this was in uh, Devon in England, and I was spending a lot of my time walking in these fields, very, you know, beautiful physical location, you know, with, uh, you know, the, the hill, hills of uh, Dartmoor, not too far away, where the Hound of the Baskervilles took place, if you ever saw that movie. I haven't seen that one. Uh, yeah, it's a Sherlock Holmes story. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Uh, but as I was walking around and I, I really got into, oh, I love not doing anything, you know, and I, and I remember having the thought at one point, I'm doing not doing really well. <laughs> <laughs> I had that thought and I, 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 I got it pretty quickly after that. So going back to uh, last year, it was also something that I've been invited to practice in other meditative approaches and just to uh, really uh, just not to not to be doing anything with my mind letting it just be really zero not even no instructions whatsoever and yet uh, you know perhaps because of past practice when there was not doing, there could also be a vast, large awareness present that when I would, there was a way that I could internally let go of doing. And this large awake awareness would open up. Yeah, I 
I was recently at a um, Plum Village retreat and there was a, this like gem in the book that I came across around not doing and spending like a day a week not doing. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I was really wondering like, what what is that? What would I do? <laughs> you know, and what would I do when I'm not doing? And I was kind of, oh, what do I do? Do I meditate for the whole day? Do I walk around the garden? Like, what, what do I do with the day? Like, I couldn't figure that out. And I spoke to a few of the nuns there and they were saying that, you know, they they do different things during the day and they spend their days kind of um, really gently, I guess, puttering around would be a way of putting it. But I didn't really, I, I kind of wasn't really quite sure what that meant for me and how I would try that out. And I'm still yet to try it. I'm really excited about the prospect. It's a, be- it's a beautiful theme. And I had, you know, I had been aware for a long time of the theme of not not doing in uh, in the the work of uh, Chuangzu mm. and, and and Lao Tzu and particularly Chuangzu and there the you know, it's a translation the translation different translations sometimes translated as non-action it's a translation of Wu Wei could mm. be translated as not doing and it's not in opposition to doing. In other words, non-action, you know, I think there's a line from, yeah, one of the passages in Chuang Tzu, where it says non-action, translation of Wu Wei, is not inaction. So it's, uh, it's a particular language or particular set of words to talk about a, a deep level of being. And in the text, it says that uh, non-action comes out of uh, inner emptiness. It comes out of emptiness and the sacred more or less. And that it's, uh, it's really about um, doing, which doesn't come out of our usual sense of being a doer, so to speak. And it, it points to uh, uh, doing which is has its most fundamental basis not doing and so it could be meditation which is a non-meditation which is a technical term in some tibetan traditions and but i would so that's really what this is uh pointing to you know and in in developing it as a, a talk theme i also wanted to go through a few stages to get there so i wanted to you know, for some people, more doing in meditation or daily life is important, or being an activist, doing is crucial. So there's a place for doing, but this, this deep sense of doing coming out of not doing is pointing to uh, a very deep kind of action. And this, this is what I was exploring in the retreat. I think some of this comes out with something that can be more familiar to people in the experience of what is called flow, you know, as, as described by the uh, Hungarian psychologist Csikszentmihalyi, with the, uh, for English speakers, uh, not easily pronounceable name. <laughs> it may have sounded like it just came off my lips in a flowing way, but it's been 10 years in, of practice with his name. So anyway. Well, I think he that, had, uh, yeah. Yeah, he has that sense that there is a flow experience, which virtually all of us do experience at times, 
And then, and the flow experience has a lot of qualities of this deep not doing. You know, it's the flow, there is not self-consciousness, self-image. There can be a large amount of effort, but it feels effortless. There may be, everything may be spontaneously happening without a sense of doing. So I think that can be an entryway if we track, we track those kind of experiences, which I think most of us experience at times. You know, when we're doing something we're really familiar with, maybe very, very good at, and we're just in a very natural state. So it can, it can, we can experience this in, uh, you know, if one's an artist or a musician, you know, you know, just being with something one does well, probably anything one does, a teacher, someone in the helping professions, cooking, could be even, even in meditating that there are these experiences, sports where it's, there's just a sense of flow. And I think that can give a sense of not doing because part of the sense of not doing in this deep sense is there's not a doer. There's not a sense of self as a doer and there's not all the, all the thinking which is usually there and doing, oh, now I should do this, now I should do that. There's, there's a spontaneity and a flow to it. Yeah. And, and in those, those, for most people, those are very, very beautiful and powerful experiences. So that's an, that's an access place, because mm. I think we have to tune in to when those experiences are occurring, because we, we, they may just go by and we don't realize they're happening. Mm. Is there, is there a way to, um, this is, this is what I'm interested in, because there's definitely a link there between what we're saying about having a long-term perspective and the presence of this moment and, and almost like allowing the action that arises on its own to lead us rather than doing, doing from a different, from that usual habitual place. Yeah. Yeah. However but, one accesses it, you know, and again, it, uh, it can be, you know, hard to access from a doing perspective. Mm. So I think we have to, uh, in my experience, uh, you know, maybe a, a first step is just to realize when it's already happening on its own, yeah. without me trying to make anything happen. And then, you know, tune into those experiences when they're occurring and just enjoy them, you know, and, and, uh, and, and get better at it. And, you know, when I, when I've given talk series on the theme of doing and not doing, you know, the, the starting point is to, uh, have this balance of doing and not doing. So for some of us, it means actually doing more, whether it's in meditation or daily life. And for some of us, it means learning how to relax more into aspects of non-doing. In meditation, it could mean really emphasizing receptivity more and letting go of now I'm doing this, now I'm doing this, now I'm mindful of this and just you know, it could be just relaxing. Oh, I'm having body sensations. Let me relax and just go into a more receptive mode. Mm. Let me be with the sunset in a receptive way. So I think that can be, you know, the tuning into the flow experiences and then opening up to more being more receptive with one's experience. I think those are good entryways for developing the sense of uh, non-doing or moving towards that that deeper sense that I described uh, uh, earlier. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. 
there, there's definitely a sense of um, this exploration of this not doing that we've just had. And that, but I've got this curiosity coming up around the doing as well. And I know they go hand in hand, but something I've noticed within uh, your book and, uh, and your talks has been this kind of a interesting way of, of structuring practice yeah. of kind of maybe like focusing in on a certain element for a number of days, weeks, or years, even. Um, I think you mentioned the 37 wings being like a two year focus for you or something, which was like yeah. amazing to hear. And I was, I was wondering, um, yeah, how you go about that and, and, and why you've chosen that, that, that way and how that's kind of informed your own practice and, and what experience you've had with that kind of approach. With the approach of, uh, of focusing yeah. on doing at times and then not doing. But yeah. a, specific, yeah, a specific kind of doing um, with a specific intention, because what seems to be the case and, and definitely share if I'm kind of off track here, but it seems yeah. to be there's a, a reflection on a topic and then um, this kind of seems to come up over and over in some exercises in the book and, and a couple of what you've shared, uh, talks that you've given. Yeah. So there's a, there's a kind of reflection on a topic, maybe one that you've may have found friction with in daily experience. And then there's a going deeper into that um, intentionally, purposefully, and really, you know, activating that doing um, element. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think for myself, you know, my, my part of my interest in this topic is because I would characterize my myself and my kind of upbringing conditioning uh, of uh, being a doer, so to speak. You know, and, and uh, doing a lot, being able to do a lot, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, early, you know, um, do my homework or have academic success and develop this capacity. And so, uh, you know, I brought that same approach to, uh, to meditation. And so I wanted to, uh, you know, for me, you know, because doing had seemed to be something I was good at, and I got rewards. You know, I got rewards academically or in other ways. So I brought that whole approach to spiritual life, naturally enough, you mm -hmm. know, and said, I'll just, you know, I didn't say this consciously, but I more or less was saying to myself, uh, I'll just be a really great meditative doer. This was kind of in, in the beginning. And you know, I, I, uh, for me, this translated into meditating a lot. I remember some of my first uh, retreats, these were in the insight meditation tradition at uh, the Insight Meditation Society at, in Barrie, Massachusetts, uh, where teachers, the early teachers were people like Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein. And I was, you know, I was doing a lot of those retreats, so to speak. And uh, I wanted to be a good meditator. And I thought I would uh, be a good meditator by, I didn't know anything other than to just do a lot. That translated into meditating for a longer time than other people, staying up late, getting up early. And, uh, you know, and then I, and of course, you know, cause I think I was in a little bit of a quandary 
as a doer who, for whom my past doing had been recognized and rewarded. How do you, how do you engage in a meditation retreat and how can people tell that you're doing a good job? Maybe other than the teachers who you talk to, how can other people tell? Well, reality is they can't. <laughs> and, but I said, well, I guess they can tell if I sit for a long time and I, you know, I sit and I have a really great, you know, uh, full lotus and all the, you know, all the externals basically. And, um, you know, and I remember one, and of course, uh, reality helped me to explode that set of operating assumptions because I remember one retreat, uh, I got sick and I could, you know, I had a cold and I couldn't sit very long and I was sniffling the whole time. And I knew that, I, I thought that people would think, oh, he's a bad meditator, which of course, probably they weren't paying any attention, but you know, it basically, it was, it was actually an early, very uh, difficult, painful experience because in that retreat, I watched my self image of being a good meditator fall apart. And it was quite painful and even, you know, went into some really uh, painful experiences, you know, that, that can happen at times. Uh, but, but sort of exploding that sense of being a doer. I'm giving that story partly just to give that sense of uh, having a strong identity as a doer, which is the case for a lot of people. And so part of the, uh, you know, part of the, uh, I'm, I'm going in two directions. I'll, I'll say one thing and then come back to your, your question. So part of what I encourage is to, in a way, look at the identity of being a doer. Look at the self-image. That involves a certain kind of doing. I can, you know, use mindfulness. I can use reflection. I can set my intention to really track when I'm uh, having a strong sense of doing. And you can, one can find this especially maybe when there are times when one has free time or on vacation or a free day and people, you know, I work with a lot of people, they report getting nervous when they're not doing something, right? And, and I think that's a very familiar experience. And so that can be the sign of a strong sense of having an identity as a doer. And yet um, one of the ways we work with that in a sense is by doing something, looking at it reflecting, inquiring, uh, setting intention to, to track it and so forth. So I think the, 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 be, the you know, my strength as a doer can be, you know, is still a very important aspect of spiritual practice. So this, this it could mean, you know, it means partly for myself and then having a lot of discipline, being able to, you know, um, go through different teachings, work with them, having a mind that works well with structure and, you know, and, and you know, as well as in uh, teaching, well, you know, a lot of learning in the being in the teaching role, really going through different teachings. You know, you were referring to a time when I went through one, one uh, a set of teachings that the Buddha called the seven sets, which is sometimes called the 37 wings of awakening. 
which was sort of when he was asked to summarize what's most important, he referred to this list of seven core teachings, including the four foundations of mindfulness, the four noble truths, the four types of wise effort, the seven factors of awakening and so forth. I've named probably four of them, I think. And so I went, I went through those in a two-year process. And sometimes I work with people where I take them through that similar to what I did. And that's, that's fruitful. So there's a definite place for doing in, in meditation. So, uh, you know, we're, what I was pointing to in our initial discussion was that in the, in the, I think in the most mature or most developed form, there's no longer a distinction between doing and not doing. And we can start opening up to that, but along the way, for most, you know, we can touch it at different times, but as a, a stable form of practice, I think it's fairly mature. And for most people it comes fairly late in their practice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, <laughs> cool. Thank you for sharing that and opening, opening that up and, and taking a, us on a bit of a journey. Topic. I'm actually, in, uh, in 10 days, I'm going to do a whole day just on that topic, mm, mm. Which, which will be fun. Definitely. That sounds like a good time. <laughs> uh, yeah. There was this thing that you mentioned earlier around um, that painful experience. And I was wondering if we may be able to just touch on the idea of transforming the judgmental mind and, oh, yeah. and touching those spaces that quite, might, may be quite painful and where our judgments may stem from and if we could explore that just briefly, um, that might be okay. really nice because it kind of feels like it leads on from what you shared. It's a rich topic. I've, you know, I, I, I've chosen the language somewhat carefully of, of talking about transforming the judgmental mind because in ordinary English, we use the word judgment in a variety of ways. Mm. And sometimes it means like a, a, a neutral non-charged, non-reactive uh, discernment or assessment or evaluation. And, and I think it's very important to distinguish that from what, it, what I'm talking about as when we're judgmental. Mm -hmm. so when we use the word judgmental, that distinction is clear. Uh, but it's, it's, um, it's a very important distinction because I've, I've often heard Actually, some of my colleagues, fellow teachers, uh, and I've seen this in, in published books where people are just down on judgment as such. And I think that can be very confusing to people because there is a very important place for discernment, uh, judgment as used in the ordinary English sense of you know, neutral, non-charged evaluation. You know, or, you know, as a teacher, when I work with people, it's very important that I have a certain discernment about where they're at. Could call that an evaluation. But the key is whether I'm reactive. So for me, uh, the, you know, the starting point is, is a careful definition. And the problem is the reactivity, you know, is the way that there's a kind of uh, automatic, often often automatic or often semi-conscious way that I'm trying to push away something unpleasant or grab hold of something pleasant, which, which does go back to 
probably the core teaching of the Buddha, you know, that uh, the core problem, this is, this is there in the teaching on dependent origination, sometimes translated as dependent arising. The core teaching is that the roots of the whole human problem is uh, basically that we are sometimes we grasp after the pleasant and we push away the unpleasant. And we do that somewhat automatically, unconsciously based on past experience and conditioning. Again, uh, terminology and distinctions are important here. The, the key is the reactive, automatic, unconscious, process of doing that, we can sometimes in a uh, skillful way, you know, uh, bring about something pleasant, maybe like your cup of tea you know, or something like that. And so the, 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 it's that the pleasant isn't the problem and the unpleasant isn't the problem. It's the reactivity around those two that's the problem. And that's, uh, that, that is actually a very simple way to talk about the core of 2,600 years of Buddhist tradition. That's it. You know, it's that the core is um, transform that reactivity. Again, we have to be careful because in English, we sometimes use the word react or reactive without meaning what I'm talking about now. Mm -hmm. So we sometimes, you know, so, I would kind of give a more technical definition and distinguish response from reaction or being reactive. I, and I think reactive is the best translation of dukkha. The Buddha sometimes said, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. And that's right at the center. And I think the meaning of dukkha that is closest to this um, teaching is that dukkha is reactivity. And so being judgmental is sort of a more elaborate form of that reactivity in relationship to the pleasant or unpleasant. Now we know it probably most easily in relationship to the unpleasant, to something painful. Would you be able to, sorry to cut you off here. Um, That's okay. I, I'm, at some point, it'd be really nice to hear your version of these, this teaching of the two arrows, because I think that might fit in quite nicely with this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. You know, um, th this teaching about uh, dukkha is, I think, uh, uh, often very confusing for people and presented in a, a, I think, often in a confusing way. Partly because the Buddha himself, I would say, had at least four different meanings for dukkha. Mm. You know, and then the teaching of the two arrows to me is the most important one for understanding what the end of dukkha means. Because the, the most common translation of dukkha is that of suffering. And so we talk about the Four Noble Truths and the Second Noble Truth is the end of suffering. But um, that can, that's confusing for a few different reasons. One of them is that in English, we don't always distinguish between pain and suffering. You know, and sometimes we do, but some often we don't. So, you know, is suffering just having something unpleasant or painful? 
Well, uh, one the you know the primal meaning of dukkha that the Buddha used was that uh, dukkha is the unpleasant. But if we ask, does that meaning of dukkha make sense of the Buddha's attempt to end dukkha? It doesn't, because pain or the unpleasant is always gonna be with us. You know, and the Buddha, when he was older, had headaches, presumably unpleasant. He had come to the end of dukkha, but he hadn't come to the end of the unpleasant or the end of painful experiences. You know, and I was just talking earlier today with a friend who's a very, very developed practitioner. And uh, she has some really, has had for a good part of her life, major health issues, but they don't seem to get in the way of being deeply, deeply awake. They're unpleasant often in the body, you know, and, and so forth. So, uh, so that, that's, um, so the, the, the Buddha gave uh, the sense of something being unpleasant as a core meaning of dukkha. And that's the meaning that's I think often translated as suffering, but that doesn't make sense of the end of dukkha, nor do some of the other meanings of dukkha in the text. One meaning is that what is pleasant will at some point become unpleasant, impermanent. Mm -hmm. But that also doesn't make sense of the end of dukkha because that's gonna always continue. Another understanding of dukkha is that nothing which is uh, conditioned can give lasting satisfaction. And that's true, but it doesn't help us with understanding what the end of dukkha means because that's always gonna be the case. It doesn't end, in other words. So what's the, who's the winner of this contest? It's actually uh, the teaching that dukkha is reactivity. And that comes out really, really clearly in the teaching of the two arrows, which is probably my favorite teaching, partly because it gives us a really clear sense. It's a very simple uh, teaching as well. Uh, the Buddha was with a group of practitioners and he asked them a question. He said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. What distinguishes a practitioner from a non-practitioner? They didn't answer, so he gave his own answer. And he said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. And, you know, we can interpret this to mean sometimes we have unpleasant physical experiences, sometimes unpleasant emotional experiences or interpersonal experiences or experiences of the news or whatever. And that's part of human life. Whether one is a deeply awakened person or a total non-practitioner, um, that's the case. And we, we could say in a similar way with the, with the pleasant, we all experience the pleasant or the unpleasant. Where are the differences, the Buddha said, is that for the non-practitioner, when the unpleasant experience is there, that person will tend to push it away, thereby creating actually more pain. The Buddha said that everyone experiences it as at times what's unpleasant or painful. He said, that's like being shot by an arrow. And he called that the first arrow. And he said that a non-practitioner will tend to shoot a second arrow as if that would help when the first arrow was there. So 
What does that look like? It means when I have some pain in my body, I might tense in my body. That's the form of the second arrow. And actually that's it's very important uh, finding that, you know, the well-known uh, innovator teacher, John Kabat-Zinn, who developed mindfulness-based stress reduction, his first job was, uh, you know, when he was, uh, well, let me, let me back up. He was, uh, he was working for the first application of mindfulness in a medical setting was with a group of people with some forms of chronic pain. And what he found was that if you could teach them mindfulness, you could eliminate a lot of the pain because they found that with some forms of chronic pain, as much as 80% of the pain wasn't the original chronic pain, it was how they tensed around it, how they reacted. And so if you can eliminate the, you know, part of the 80%, it's a major contribution. That was the first medical um, intervention using mindfulness in the Western world to, to, to the best of my knowledge. And that gets at the point that um, if we can really um, eliminate the second arrow, that would be an example of the second arrow that tensing, or, you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm in my home, and I, um, I, I'm walking in the night and I trip over, you know, uh, my son's shoe and I blame, you know, the next morning or I blame my son and I get really agitated. That's shooting the second arrow or I'm judgmental towards myself for what happened yesterday. That's shooting the second arrow or I'm, um, I'm in a conflict someone says something nasty to me, I right away back, say something nasty to that person, that's shooting the second arrow. And we can think of any number of uh, world conflicts or conflicts between countries or between groups, which are examples of shooting the second arrow. So it's a huge thing to learn. You know, the, the teaching is how can I learn not to shoot the second arrow? And there are a lot of ways to respond to that. But that's the teaching. And I think that it points to what does it mean to um, end dukkha? It means to not shoot the second arrow, not to be reactive. I think that's the, again, I think that's the core of the entire Buddha's teachings right there. And so I apply that to the judgmental mind. Should I go there now? You want to sure. ask? Yes, let's something? connect it. Yeah. Yeah, and so that influences how I interpret what I'm calling the judgmental mind. And I mostly in my teaching focus on judgmental mind about something unpleasant, like, oh, you know, I did such a bad job with that talk yesterday. You know, you always mess up or whatever, you know, whatever, however I get on my own case. That would be uh, shooting the second arrow. In this instance, it'd be through the form of being judgmental, blaming, and so forth. Uh, I think we can also uh, be reactive and have reactivity with what we might call a positive judgment because it's the other side of the uh, reactivity in relationship to the unpleasant is the reactivity in relation to the pleasant, which is grasping on rather than pushing away. Both of them, again, relatively unconsciously, automatically out of habit. 
right? That's. Uh, I think you mentioned like a, a practical exercise of walking through Bed Bath and Beyond or something, and I've I, it brought up something for me around just food, just eating food with us and noticing the greed when that arises. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can really notice uh, the reactivity just in daily life. You know how, you know. Uh, I think the story you're relating to was. Uh, Oh, yeah, it was from a class that I taught with my colleague, Diana Winston, which was a class, we called it uh, greed management. This was about 20 years ago, and we were really in, into the class, and we had extremely low enrollment. Like we had two teachers and five people in the class, and uh, we didn't care, we were really into the topic. And we had as the, you know, it was really interesting to study the nature of greed closely over five sessions. And our, um, our so-called final exam was walking through a newly opened sort of so-called superstore called Bed Bath and & Beyond and, and doing silent walking meditation for 30 minutes and watching one's mind. And I was noticing greed for things that prior to entering the store, I didn't know that the products even existed. <laughs> So that's a reactionary state, right? This kind of, I mean, not only from yeah, positive. Grasping after the pleasant, yeah. which can occur in all sorts of ways. Yeah. That is, I'm calling that the, the one of the two forms of reactivity. The other form is the negative, the pushing away of the unpleasant. And I'm saying that being judgmental can occur in both ways. We usually think about it, though, more in relation to the unpleasant. But I can be judgmental in a positive way by talking about or thinking about um, you know how cool an outfit i have thank you for your participation in this episode of the daydreamer podcast i'll leave links on our beautiful guest in the show notes section on the website where you can check out all their wonderful work and offerings and if you're interested in working one-on-one -on -one with me feel free to head over to todaydreamer.com and get in touch also if you're a part of the Today Dreamer family, which really only means that you've listened to one full episode and you'd like to go deeper to at least one full episode, then, um, and you'd like to participate in some group meditation sessions online that I'm offering for free only to listeners of the show, then please send me an email through the contact form on the website. I'll add you to the list and um, i'll give you all the details to that and any other upcoming kind of offerings around helping your development in this space thank you so much again and until next time be present feel alive and yeah be well <laughs>